Well, hail fellows, well met. Welcome to Fuzz and Film. I'm Drew, I'm joined today by Scott. Well, hello there. Uh, this is our intermission episode for February, in which we talk about the stuff that we've seen. There's no theme at all, other than that we saw it. That's always a theme, to yes. be honest. But, um, <laughs> less of a, a higher theme beyond it. Um, I'll stop talking now. Um, and what, I'll start talking about film instead because I'm on stronger ground there than off the cuff intros. <laughs> now, if you're familiar with Sky's comedy Moon Boy, then I could describe Jojo Rabbit as very like that, but with Chris O'Dowd's Sean Murphy replaced by Taika Waititi's Adolf Hitler. <laughs> and to be fair, you'd have a pretty good understanding of the setup. Even some of the drawings look the same. For those not familiar, I suppose I better explain it a little more fully. Based on Christine. Oh, crikey, I don't know how to pronounce Belgian names, especially Belgians living in New Zealand. <laughs> Loinen? I'm going with Loinen. Based on Christine Loinen's definitely not a comedy book, Caging Skies, Taika Waititi's film tells the story of 10-year-old Johannes Jojo Betzler, a member of the Deutsches Jungvolk in der Hitlerjugend, or Hitler Youth, you and I, during the last winter and spring of World War II. So fanatical about and brainwashed by the cult is he that his imaginary friend, played by the director Waititi, is der Führer himself. The fervent young Nazi is therefore presented with a bit of a problem when he discovers a young Jewish girl, Elsa, Thomas and Mackenzie, living in the walls of his house. They come to an arrangement though, where he won't tell the Gestapo about her and she won't cut off his Nazi head. <laughs> so good. As Jojo interrogates Elsa about Jews for research into his book, You Who Jew, <laughs> suggesting there's a potential useful text by his Hitler Youth commander, Sam Rockwell's Captain Klinsendorf, he begins to think of her as a friend, and less of a, you know, mind-controlling, egg-laying, bat-wing-having monster. Jojo Rabbit featuring more of your Borat view of Jews. <laughs> And because Jojo is ten, not evil, he begins to question the Nazi propaganda. But maybe Hitler just made a mistake. <laughs> Jojo Rabbit has been criticised in many places as being toothless and unnecessary. I will give some weight to this first point. A lot of the bad stuff that happened during the Third Reich is merely alluded to at best. It's certainly not the death of Stalin in terms of it being a toothy satire. But as to the second... I politely request such commentators to get bent. <laughs> Nazis are bad and hating others because they're others is bad are seemingly obvious truths that, as a society, we seem to keep having to relearn over and over, especially in recent years. In time-honoured tradition, the Nazis here are treated as buffoons, which I am sure is the reason for the conspicuously bad and inconsistent German accents. <laughs> it's not quite a lower low, but, well, it's heading that way and Stephen Merchant's ludicrous Gestapo officer. Making light of the atrocities of the Nazi regime is an entirely valid way to approach it. Just look at another film by a Jewish director, Mel Brooks the Producers, and its magnificent Springtime for Hitler. Mockery, um, well, it helps rob evil of its power. For all that though, the Nazis and Jojo still carry a threat, the menace of which is brought home to bear in a rather shocking moment at the end of the second act. It's still not immune to criticism, however. For me, the biggest problem is the fact that visually it feels like a Wes Anderson knockoff, and not just a particularly obvious comparison to Moonrise Kingdom. And why Titi's Hitler sometimes is, well, it's just trying too hard to be cookie. That he's a relatively inert version of Hitler, though, isn't an issue. 
This is a 10-year-old's view of the Chancellor, not an adult's. But mostly, well, it's bloody funny. So watch it, and then watch it again. Yes, I thought this was really, really funny indeed. And to be honest, there's not really an awful lot more to say about it, because it's a comedy film at the end of the day, and it's really, really funny. I suppose I can only really get behind anyone being a little bit upset about it, not hammering home how bad Nazis are if you actually happen to be in Germany, because they kind of have laws about this kind of thing, and I suspect this might not fully comply with them. Um, But it doesn't actually matter in terms of what this film's trying to do. As you said, the best way often to criticise these foolish ideas is to just point out how foolish they are and laugh at them, rather than trying to platform them and take them seriously as though there is some merit in debating any of this but the only debate should be laughter at it because it's ridiculous and how sad it is we keep pointing this out to people um, but no it's they deserve exactly the same treatment as they got in uh, the producers and the blues brothers for that matter uh, i hate illinois nazis Scott. They, are, they are the worst um Yes, uh, really charming performances from the young lead, uh, the kid playing Jojo and his, uh, his best friend as well, who is one of the funnier supporting acts in it. Uh, that wee kid is great. Yeah. Yeah, it is just, I thought, really well executed. Most of its jokes land. I don't think there's too many dozen. I didn't have the same problem with you with um, Wikiti's Hitler, which I found generally funny all the way throughout. So, yeah, if anything, I liked it even more than you did. So, uh, if you haven't seen it, I thoroughly recommend it. And, uh, yeah, really, really great and deserves all the plaudits that it's been getting. And so here, have some more. Yeah, I saw, I saw a couple of reviews that were really, like, one-star reviews. And, like, like this one-note comedy falls completely flat. And I know comedy... Perhaps more than any other genre, it's so um, subjective. But yeah, did they watch the same film as me? Yeah, it's it's really. I don't puzzling. get this. It's and also it features a ten-year-old boy um, kicking Hitler out of the window and saying, "Feck <laughs> off, Hitler!" You know, it's like yeah. that's that's um, objectively funny. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's just. Um, I mean, I always did stop my notes when I was making them. Well, like, like it's a, it's really funny, <laughs> and there is like with a lot of comedies, you could just leave it at that, and with the, the subjectiveness too. But there's a lot more to this film as well. And the one argument around it is the ones that are brought up is like, you know, should it be a bit toothy or, or something like that? And again, looking at, I'm honestly not sure if this is pitched as a kids' film or not. It's rated 12, so I'm guessing it's probably not. No. In which case, it could probably afford to be a bit stronger in some of its stuff, but it's not really satirising what they did. It's just like this um, this crazy ideas of this fanciful 10-year-old boy. Honestly, not any dafter or far-fetched than the actual propaganda that people were spreading and, and that some people genuinely believed. It's, yeah. It just kind of highlights how stupid it was, how mental it is to have believed any of that nonsense. Yeah. Uh, I do wonder, these people want it to be two theories. Like, you do know this is a comedy, right? <laughs> like, it has one absolutely heartbreaking moment in it. Is is that not enough? <laughs> how much more do you want to see in a comedy? Because... You remember Schindler's List was not exactly high on the laughter scale. Um, that's what you're in danger of turning this into if you go any much further into that. And I think we all know that Nazis did bad things. 
we don't need to keep showing those ones in particular to laugh at the general concepts of how Nazis got to the point of doing the bad things, yes. which this is more interested in. It's far more interested in the ideology behind it and the, the propaganda and the brainwashing that goes on in these kind of regimes than the actual nasty bits themselves, which is just as valid a target for criticism as opposed to the actual outcome of what happens is once that's been properly processed and given guns at the end of it. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's maybe even more important, Scott, because the whole, like, killing people, I think it's a lot easier to get people on board with, you know, that's probably not good. Even people with, like, really hideous beliefs often think that's going too far. Yeah. But there are people who believe things almost as um, stupid as the things Jojo believes about them, like, <laughs> they lived in the centre of the earth and that their um, they're true um, language is music and things <laughs> Baffling, frankly. Yes. Anyway, yes, really funny. Um, I've seen it twice now in the last two weeks, and it's excellent. So you should definitely watch it if you haven't done so. Yes. Cheat yourself. You've been good, and you deserve it. <laughs> you have my blessing. You can go and watch Jojo Rabbit. <laughs> okay, then, Scott. Would people who have been good and deserve a treat also be in line for watching The Gentleman? Is that something they should consider doing? Oh, they should do if they're. If they bend a certain way. Um, there was a time, maybe a decade ago, where saying a Guy Ritchie film was pretty much a review in and of itself. <laughs> of course, now that particular church has been brought in to include the likes of Sherlock Holmes films and, of all things, Aladdin, further description is now required. Although, if you simply pretend that the last ten years didn't happen, The Gentleman is very much a straight-line continuation of the lock, stock and snatch bloodline. Uh, the Gentleman is a story told in large part by Hugh Grant's sleazy tabloid journalist Fletcher, relating the rise and potential fall of drug kingpin Mickey Pearson, played by Matthew McConaughey, to Fletcher's lieutenant Charlie Hunnan's Raymond. And, well, that pulls in a whole lot of other characters and plot strands that, in classic Richie fashion, snowball together in a big old mess of convenience and coincidence, which is fun to watch, but sounds like a cross between madness and nonsense have repeated. Some of those characters include uh, Michelle Dockery as Rosalind Pearson, Mickey's partner and equal in the business and personal senses, Eddie Marsden as Big Dave, the rabid tabloid editor seeking Mickey's downfall, uh, Colin Farrell as coach, a gym trainer with an unsettlingly efficient grasp of gangland mechanics, trying to get his young charges out of trouble with Mickey, which was caused by the machinations of Henry Golding's Dry Eye, a triad rival who's trying to muscle in on Mickey's operations. Now, popular opinion would be that Guy Ritchie very much lost his mojo after going back to the well of knockabout London gangland crime comedies a bit too often. To be honest, even if Revolver wasn't a patch on Lockstock, given that the market is not otherwise saturated with similar outings, I could have gladly watched the mediocre Ritchie joint every two years without really complaining. Uh, but his time away from the Cockney coalface has certainly built up an anticipation for this, and to be honest, I'm as surprised as you are to report it's pretty much delivered on all fronts. Now, it's not high art, of course, and no, it's not as good as Snatch or Lockstock, but it's certainly much closer to that than Revolver or Rock and Roller. Of all things, it's probably Hugh Grant that's stealing the show here, playing wildly and hilariously against type, but the rest of the cast are also dependably excellent, and it has the usual Richie, punchy pacing and funny, excessively sweary dialogue. I think he's been saving up all of his cussing budget for the last decade and spent it all on this film. Now, it's not perfect, but largely in ways that don't really matter. The narrative doesn't hold a lot of water, but it's a bucket that's wide enough to contain the characters and uh, watch them bounce off each other in funny ways. And, well, it's a comedy. What more do you want from it? It's so good, it even survives the most ludicrous piece of plot placement I've ever seen. To my surprise, well worth watching. 
remind me of the product placement, Scott? Oh, perhaps you, you might not know it if you don't know the story. But, um, you know, f- when for no particular reason in the middle of the night, they go out for a barbecue. And, and that seemed weird. That is because Guy Ritchie has invented that barbecue and sells it. Really? <laughs> that's that's his design. <laughs> and he wanted to put it in a film. And he did. So I suppose he paid himself for it. I don't know. <laughs> I can say... Um this is maybe there's the one downside to my film related media blackout before <laughs> I see stuff unless I catch a trailer in the cinema talking of which so, um, seeing a trailer in the cinema I saw the trailer for this film if, without having heard of it before and within about 30 seconds like well that's a Guy Ritchie film yes yes it is isn't it um, <laughs> Revolver's the film with Jason Statham isn't it yes which is the only Guy Ritchie film I've not seen apart from Swept Away, which I assume doesn't actually exist and just a, a joke, <laughs> an urban legend. Yes. So, I guess his last gangster film I would have seen would make it would be Rock and Roller then. But oh, I went in with this with quite a lot of anticipation. And it's great. It's really, yeah. really funny and entertaining. I, what I did think, though, and almost immediately too, is that I think, I can Guy Ritchie directing a lad, I still can't quite get my head around that. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's a film that ought not to exist, but not because of Guy Ritchie's direction of it. But that was his film before The Gentleman, and I just have this feeling that he basically came away from the set of Aladdin scared by all the bright colours and Disney family-friendly <laughs> language yeah. and came back to his producers and financiers and says, the next film I'm going to make is going to be all the Guy Ritchie. <laughs> yeah. Because it, it, in every aspect, it's all the Guy Ritchie. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's just thoroughly, thoroughly entertaining. Yeah, yeah. The, the plot doesn't make a sense, a lack of sense, really, but they never really did. It's more just like, right, how is this guy going to have actually screwed over this guy? Yeah. When you think this guy screwed over this guy. And you can guess some of it, some of you can't, again, because of the relative lack of sense in some of it. <laughs> it's thoroughly entertaining. Not massively sold to Matthew McConaughey in it, um, but I didn't dislike him. I was, I'm not convinced that was the best casting mm, for the yeah. role. Charlie Hunnam's great. I've not seen him an awful lot, actually. I've never seen the um, the TV stuff he's been in. I can only think of it at the moment of him being in Pacific Rim, I think. Mm-hmm. Sure. But he's great. Uh, but uh, the, the standout is Hugh Grant. Yeah. I was not expecting that from Hugh Grant at all, but he's great. I kind of was, um, in a way, that he was capable of that, because I, I think you, like I, Scott, were very much of familiar with mid-90s Hugh Grant, you know, Four Weddings and a Funeral, the sort of upper-class English, well, twit sometimes, but yeah. tough, and, like, not particularly interesting, and a lot of the films he's in didn't seem particularly interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And it's like, uh, that kind of slightly hapless, slightly effete Englishman, you yeah. know, that seemed to be in everything. And then I saw About a Boy, which I enjoyed a great deal, and I thought... Okay, now there's definitely something more to him here because I'd always been turned off by Hugh Grant before and about Craigie about a boy's 20 or 3 or something I think a long time ago but uh, there's something in there and he's starting even just there a wee bit this kind of self-effacing almost poking fun at that persona but not quite because the film doesn't always call for it and then I saw Paddington 2 <laughs> in which he is clearly happily taking the mick out of himself and just like playing a role you wouldn't really expect him to be capable of right. or, or willing to do at least and just he's absolutely vamping it up and, and hamming it up and doing a complete pantomime performance in Paddington 2 and it's fantastic and there's almost something like that here 
And it's so funny. <laughs> it's such a ridiculous character, but he pulls it off. And I find it really, really entertaining. It really makes the film. And yeah, so, as you say, it's a Guy Ritchie film, but I like Guy Ritchie films, so <laughs> yes. it's a Guy Ritchie film. Yay! It's a Guy Ritchie <laughs> film. So, uh, yeah, it's really, really entertaining. I think maybe the only slight disappointment I have... Matthew McConaughey, I think, was great, but it wasn't bad. Mm-hmm. The only real disappointment I have is that Eddie Marson isn't it's particularly not, entertaining. It's doesn't particularly yeah. Eddie Marson-y. Yeah, it doesn't have a great deal to do. Can't have more than, what, two scenes of any note. So, so yeah. Yeah. Um, it's more just kind of like shouting angry Eddie Marson. That's generally not the most entertaining Eddie Marson. Yeah. What I really want is the Eddie Marson from Filth. <laughs> something like that, you know, or a little dog or something even. But um, Eddie Marson from Filth would have been very welcome. It's, uh, it's uh, kind of grumbly, gruff, shouty, serious Eddie Marson. Nah. It's a minor complaint because it's a minor role. Yeah. You could do a lot worse than watch The Gentleman. Yes, absolutely. But would you say the same about Uncut Gems? I'm going to guess not. But yes. Um, has something I said earlier today given something away, Scott? Let's not spoil it for the guineas. Or is it because you've also seen it? <laughs> Bit of both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It seems like Netflix wants to make certain films a real challenge to watch. Firstly, Uncut Gems is an Adam Sandler film. <laughs> Secondly, it's an Adam Sandler film on Netflix. I don't know how that's gone before. Thirdly, they purchased an Adam Sandler film with an opening 10 minutes that is so ear-bleedingly scored and discordant that I found it a genuine struggle not to end the film there and then. I don't think I've suffered such an Orville assault since Philip Glassie's score... Uh, sorry, score... Um, for Notes on a Scandal, which is probably the result of your particular ear problems. Because of your ear problems, I just realised... Yeah. Uh, the film begins with a Chinese-run mine in Ethiopia, where Ethiopian Jews have unearthed a rare conglomeration of black opals. A close-up of the opal then transitions into the inside of Adam Sandler's arse. <laughs> Not joking. As we see footage of his characters, and that's New York jeweler Howard Ratner, New York, his character's colonoscopy. Through some never-explained connections, Howard has obtained the rare uncut gems and hopes to sell them for a million dollars to pay off his debts. Those debts are substantial and are to bookies and loan sharks who, well, they're not the type to send a demanding letter. (laughs) Complicating this is the fact that one of them is even an in-law. Howard may have a successful jewellery business in the Diamond District, catering to rich customers such as NBA star Kevin Garnett. Here, for some reason, playing himself as a superstitious and untrustworthy asshat. (laughs) But he's not exactly, well, wise. Regularly borrowing from Peter to pay Paul, or more accurately, borrowing from Peter to place a bet with Simon, and also with the money he got pawning his friend's jewellery, in the hopes of winning enough money to stop Paul breaking his kneecaps. <laughs> Though probably he'll end up also owing Simon, and even if he wins, he'll brush off Paul and his friends because he can maybe make a bet again with Simon, and or Trevor, <laughs> and get some more. And he definitely won't lose it, and it won't all go tits up because he's how he's a smart man with a plan what could possibly go wrong. <laughs> and while this is happening, he has to pretend his marriage to Dina, Adele Dazim, is just peachy. You know, for the kids. While trying not to blow his relationship with the girlfriend Julia, played by Julia Fox. Howard lives in a dream world where everything, despite all previous evidence, 
will go according to plan. And instead of considering being punched in the throat or locked in a boot by a debt collector a problem, he shrugs it off as well. No biggie. It seems that we are supposed to see Howie and his indefatigable optimism as resilient, charming and sympathetic. And, well, if he even once acknowledged that he had a gambling problem, then at least the latter might be possible. But no, he's a pillock and deserves everything that's coming to him. (laughs) Adam Sandler's actually pretty good in Uncut Gems. Quite the best thing about it. It has been described by many as a career best performance. A low bar, but, well, still. (laughs) And technically it may well be. But it's largely to no avail. Neither his character nor any other in the film is likeable or interesting. I mean, I did care about what happened to Howard, but only because he was an absolute plank that I wanted to see suffer. (laughs) Add to that numerous scenes with the terrible synth score and 20 people talking at once and phones ringing and doors buzzing and if you want a headache, go ahead and watch Uncut Gems. (laughs) If you'd prefer to stay headache free, avoid. (laughs) Yeah, now, I've not seen any other Sadfi Brothers film, and I won't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but from what I can gather they're trying to make films that actively make the audience uncomfortable, they've embraced their whole Brechtian nature of things and when well Mako commented to my wife when watching this that this film was making her anxious Uh, so I suppose it is achieving its design goals Uh, but for non-film related reasons my brain is currently already 100% filled with anxiety and is entertaining no further applications for additional anxiety (laughs) thank you so very much Um, so yeah this film just sort of bounced off me and uh, the minute you stop even pretending to care about Sandler's character it's just two hours of Adam Sandler shouting at you Um, everybody's shouting at you Scott (laughs) any of those scenes that he's shot with the noise is relentless and it's painful it's genuinely painful Um, yeah I just could not bring myself to engage with it on the levels that it wanted me to engage with it uh, and again that's sort of the point but it's a stupid point. I don't, I don't, I don't get it. Um, I'm sure someone cleverer than me can explain why this is, in fact, a great piece of filmmaking because of that. Um, whereas I just thought it made it difficult, unnecessarily difficult and tough to watch. And I think even if you did get on board with that, I'm not sure what benefit it would be bringing to anything. Um, what, what would that... Eight? I'm not convinced. It's one of these things like they've achieved what they wanted to do perfectly. I'm just not so sure that achieving that was a particularly good idea. Yes, it wasn't really <laughs> worthwhile. Yes. So, yeah, and a lot of people seem to really, really love this film. And again, fair play to them. I'm glad they've found something to love in it, but I just could not be bothered with it. I don't necessarily think it's a bad film because it's got a specific vision and oral profile in mind and it's achieving that and there must be some explanation for that it's you know and Sandler is actually pretty good in it I'll happily admit that and yeah I just don't get it and I think a lot of a lot of people won't get it and I'm not so sure that that's a, a comment on my understanding of it so much as the Sadfi's deliberate obscuration of what they're trying to tell us with this film what is ultimately the point of having this technique that you're deploying to push us away from it at the same time as having trying to draw us in with the character and um, yeah the, 
its humours are out of balance for me, and uh, yeah, it, it just didn't work. I was repelled by it, and I didn't particularly care to overcome that repellence because I didn't see the point of doing it because I wasn't all that interested in the characters. So, Celebi, <laughs> I will yeah, let yeah. this one Celebi. Yeah, the problem with Sandler is isn't Sandler this time. It really yeah. is the writing of that character. Yeah, um, I think he does makes a really good fist of what he's given, but it's just like. What are we supposed to make of that character? I mean, he's an idiot. Yes. It never sits well with me. And he's... I mean, looking at almost like willfully stupid at some points too. It's like, there's a, a violent person who gets locked in a, a small space at one point and he taunts him. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's not going to end well, is it? Why are you doing this? <laughs> that's not clever. You know, some people don't deserve to like live safely <laughs> and act like that. Yeah, it's um, it's had so much praise too. Like the National Board of Review, I don't know what that is. I just I'm just reading this on Wikipedia, but it's not um, official anyway. It's a national yes. board. Chose as one of the top ten films of 2019. Like, yeah, no, <laughs> nope, nope, <laughs> nope. Not also one of the worst films of 2019, but no, the top no, just. <laughs> No, <laughs> yeah, I know, but it's, it's the noise of this film that gets me more than anything. It's, it's a genuinely unpleasant experience. It didn't make me anxious. It just made me angry. <laughs> Don't make um, me anxious. You wouldn't like me when I'm anxious. <laughs> but yeah, I, I had been looking forward to this because it got so much praise. And like, oh, well, I've made that mistake again. Then, okay, <laughs> <laughs> right, Scott. Well, we finish off on something that I'm actually really disappointed I didn't get to see because it disappeared out of cinemas almost immediately. And that's a new Armando Iannucci film. Now, tell us, did it deserve to disappear out of films almost immediately? I'm assuming no. No, of course not. Um, the personal history of David Copperfield, and I suppose I should perhaps feel ashamed that I've not read David Copperfield, or to be honest, much of the Dickens works, but life is short and I feel I've pretty much got the gist. Being poor is awful, and rich people are awful. And the plot of Great Expectations, probably considered his best work, is really, really dumb, so <laughs> you may as well avoid it. Yeah. Uh, anyway, rich people being awful is pretty much the gist of his output, right? It's certainly one of the central themes of Armando Iannucci's adaptation, uh, in which Dev Patel's David Copperfield narrates his own journey through life in Victorian times, growing up happily, played as a nipper by Chiraj Varsani, uh, in a well-off family, until his widowed mother, Morford Clark's Clara Copperfield, marries the outright evil Mr Murdstone, Darren Boyd, who before long packs him off to London to toil in his bottling factory under, well, Dickensian conditions. There he toils for years, lodging with the somewhat sketchy Mr Macabre, Peter Capaldi, and his family before making a break for freedom after being informed some weeks after the funeral that his mother has passed away. So he heads cross-country to his only surviving relative's gaff, his aunt Betsy Trotswood, Tilda Swinton's uh, home, meeting the lodger, uh, the eccentric Mr Dick, played by Hugh Laurie, and eccentric in this case being the ways that we'd have poorer people being lobotomised, but in this case can be largely solved, as it happens, by some prescription kite-flying. Betsy eventually agrees to fund David's education, so he's sent to a boarding school where he'll become friends with the dashing yet troubled James Steerforth and Euron Bernard. However, their taunting of Ben Wishaw's Uriah Heap will come back to bite them as he goes on to make Copperfield's later young adult life miserable as he plots to take over Betsy's lawyer's practice, swindle them out of money, 
leveraging Benedict Wong's Mr. Wickfield's alcoholism and moving in on Copperfield's ultimate love interest, Agnes Wickfield, played by Rosalind Elizar. And, well, that's maybe the half of it and half of the important characters. And from what I can gather, the entirety of the film is maybe the half of the novel. And there's more than a few changes in locations, timing and ultimate character fate. Now, that may annoy purists, and I'm sure the colourblind casting will annoy the usual knuckle-draggers. But for a more gentle audience, there's an awful lot to like in here. Um, it's a beautiful-looking period drama, and a way that I suppose they all tend to be, but the real attraction here is the comedy, which this delivers bigly. It has the best words, all the best words. And, <laughs> dear Lord, these performances. Uh, it seems very unfair to single any one out, as it's such a great ensemble performance, but if you don't come out of this thinking that Peter Capaldi is the best thing since sliced bread, there's something wrong with you. Although, to be fair, you should have had that opinion going into it. Do try to keep up. Dev Patel does a great job of anchoring things and we're required finding a straight man for the more outlandish characters to bounce off and well, everyone else here is really great too. I don't think there's an awful lot of point in me prattling on much more about it other than to say that I found it a very funny and often very touching story. It is immaculately produced and therefore comes very highly recommended. After being slightly disappointed with the death of Stalin, um, this is, again, just Yuruchi firing on all cylinders again. Uh, Really, really funny. Highly enjoyed it. Not so sure why it's uh, vanished from UK cinemas so quickly. I don't know if it, it seemed to be successful enough in terms of box office from when I checked last time. It's not quite opened in America yet. I think that's coming next month, so um, hopefully it'll recover a bit more there. But it certainly deserves an awful lot of success. It's really good. I highly recommend checking it out at, out at your earliest available opportunity. Currently it's running, according to Wikipedia, fond of all noise, never wrong, <laughs> uh, uh, $6.56 million box office and a budget of 15.6 but if it's only been in the UK so far that's yes. not so bad actually but yeah. yes I am miffed <laughs> miffed I say yeah. to not have been able to see this and having to wait now for a DVD or Blu-ray release because I really want to see this because they, because um, Armando Iannucci yes. basically can do no wrong yeah <laughs> yeah he's he's, he's like He's either been in or produced or written like most of the best British comedy in the past like what thirty odd years? What what years this? Uh, Forty maybe. <laughs> yeah, or at least um, someone who's worked with him and maybe rubbed something off on theirs. And, and like, yeah. mm-hmm. and he's had his effects across the pond as well because Veep's amazing. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, miffed. Thoroughly, thoroughly miffed, Scott. Yes. It's something to look forward to. So. There is that. Perhaps when I finally catch up with that, I'll drop a few sentences into one of our future episodes to um, give you my obviously hotly anticipated thoughts <laughs> on it as well. Yeah. Right. Well, that'll wrap us up for the day. If you would like to get in touch with us for these or any other considerations, then please do so. You can email us podcast at fudsonfilm.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at fudsonfilm or you can hit us up on Facebook at facebook.com slash fudsonfilm. And until such time as we next reconvene around the podcast tables, um, I shall bid you adieu, and I'm sure that Drew will do too. Fairly well. Fairly well.